Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 9, these are God's words. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before Yahweh continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before Yahweh continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before Yahweh. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to Yahweh. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of Yahweh made by fire, by a perpetual statute. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. It seems like an odd place uh, for the Holy Spirit to rehash for us some of the tabernacle setup instructions. Uh, the book of Leviticus as a whole has, uh, has dealt with enabling man to come to meet God at uh, the tent of meetings uh, for which God has called from the tabernacle to give that instruction. And now in chapter 23, we had all of these callings of God's people together uh, to gather to him uh, in his public worship that is centered uh, around and upon this tabernacle. And in chapter 25, we'll go from the annual calendar of those callings together of the people of Israel that we heard in chapter 23 to a multi-annual calendar that over the, over the, the generations of the people of Israel would remind them of the graciousness and the goodness of the God to whom they belong. But sandwiched in between that annual calendar, about which uh, we heard in chapter 23 last Lord's Day, and that multi-annual calendar are these two passages, one on this portion of the tabernacle setup, and another on what to do with a blasphemer in the midst of the camp. And so it's very interesting placement. Uh, and those who have a poor doctrine of Scripture just kind of wriggle out of it very easily. They say, well, you know, those backwards ancients and how they slapped scrolls together. Uh, you know, the, the Deuteronomic editor or the, or the Ezraite you know, priestly editor yeah, sure did an interesting job on this one. He must have been low on paper uh, or 
some other nonsense like that. But if you have a biblical doctrine of Scripture, if you have Jesus's doctrine of Scripture, that these words proceed from the mouth of God, even to the yod and even to the tittle, then you don't say that, you don't do that. You say, God the Holy Spirit intentionally put this together in this way to grab my attention, to grab his people's attention. And when we consider these callings together before God, that this tent of meeting, this this tent of fellowship with the glorious God who has not diminished his glory, that that is what the calendar was all about. In chapter 23, we are prepared to see what God is doing here in the instruction about the tabernacle lamps and the instruction about the showbread and the golden table inside the tabernacle. And what we find is God declaring the tabernacle a place where he shines his favor upon his people with respect to the lamps, his tabernacle a place where he not only shines his favor upon his people from himself, but brings his people to himself to enter into the blessedness of fellowship with him, to enjoy a shared life with God under the smile of his blessing. Something that we would have to have said was blasphemy to say, except that God has been all about this, not only in the entire book of Leviticus, but ever since Genesis until, praise God, the end of, uh, of all things, not just in Revelation, but in your experience, dear Christian, this is where all of this is going. This is the why of every day and every hour of what God is doing. People shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't know why God does what he... Yes, we do. You may not know all the details. Obviously, you're finite and there's an almost infinite number of details. But we know why. Because God is gathering to himself and perfecting for himself a people upon whom he is going to shine with the brilliance of his glory and do so uh, not only shining his blessing upon us, but bringing us into that shared life with him that is fellowship. And this is going to be forever. And therefore he has given as the fundamental rhythm of our lives, first in the creation, and then even here in tabernacle maintenance, to look forward to that favor and that fellowship, and that he does all this in a high priest, and not particularly this one, although praise God for the picture that Aaron was, but in the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that is his son, in whom we enter, because we are from his family, with whom we feed and have fellowship, because we are from his family. So that's what we come to hear now in these nine verses. Well, first you have the favor of God, the, uh, the intention of God to shine his light upon his people. 
Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they may, that they bring to you pure olive, uh, sorry, pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps. And again, our English translation for the however manyth time in Leviticus has not helped us because the word is ascend. To make the lamps ascend continually, that as the lamps burn and ascend as they communicate that here is a place that is connected to heaven, the light would shine. And the light, would sh- the light that shines is not just the light of pure oil on a, uh, on a stand that has seven lamps. Notice the way the location is named in verse 3. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting. The veil here is called the veil of the testimony, not because of what is in front of it, the lampstand and then the the table, but because of what is behind it, the ark of the testimony, the lid of which is the mercy seat, which is one piece with the cherubim, where God makes his presence to dwell. And so the the lamp, as it were, communicates something like if if you were, and forgive me, in sci-fi terms, a portal, that the light of the blessedness of the face of the one who dwells upon the cherubim is being communicated now from behind the veil onto the table where the showbread is. In fact, this wonderful word, ascend, Uh, here uh, in verse 2 is not going to appear again until Numbers chapter 8 when he's talking again about this lamp. And there he's going to say that that he should make the lamp to be arranged. uh, Where in that place again in Numbers 8, 2, and 3, the uh, arrange word is actually this ascend word. And there, you know, looking forward to Numbers 8, 1 through 4, the positioning, not just the positioning of the lamp, but the direction in in which it shines is emphasized in the Numbers 8 passage, which is familiar to us because we already saw instruction about the positioning of the lamp in Exodus 25 and verse 36. And there also, not just the position of the lamp, but the direction in which it shines was emphasized. And so God here reminding us by this ascension that he has provided so much in the burnt offering or what our English translations call the burnt offering. It's the ascension. Uh, now emphasizing it in a different way, not by, uh, not by that which is smokeified going up, but by entrance into the place where the light, the, if we, if we may, heavenly light shines. You remember the design inside the tabernacle where he, he takes that which looks like heaven and all the, the gold and the, the shining and he takes that which looks like the garden and he brings them together and he sets before God. Or he sets before, God sets before us what he is doing. Now, when he does come to that final shining lesson, uh, 
in Numbers 8, 1 through 4, what will he have just in the course of that book, which God's sparing to us to one another is just a couple months away uh, from that passage. It's in the wake of the end of number six. Yahweh bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and lift up his face upon you and give you peace. And so this shining is the shining of the blessing of Yahweh's face. He who dwells in unapproachable light has given his people a light lesson to see that it is his intention to shine his favor, to shine his blessing upon his people forever and ever. And remember that this pronouncement of blessing, although he didn't yet use the language of Numbers 6, 23 and 24 and there, but this pronouncing of blessing was one of the climaxes of this book of Leviticus, wasn't it? You remember when all of the uh, all of the sacrifices instruction had been given and the ordination for the priests and uh, it had all been completed. Uh, and Aaron went up to the altar and he offered the offerings on behalf of the people and he turned around from the altar and blessed them. And then Moses and Aaron had gone in together, Leviticus 9, 22 and 23, and they had come out together. They survived, praise God. But what they had experienced in the tabernacle they brought out as God's agents from the tabernacle and blessed the people. And this was a great climax. Oh, how great is the grace, the goodness of God, whose intention all along and what he is doing now is to accomplish and apply the redemption of sinners in Jesus, literally so that he may smile upon us forever. Not that he can give us a smiley face, the best human smile you have ever received from anyone. And some of you have received good ones. A husband, a wife, a parent smiling upon you with uh, the love that only a mother or father can have for you. The completely unhindered affection of your child smiling up into your face. Oh, there have been good ones, but they're all black and white emojis by comparison to that which is communicated by the smile of God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So the first thing that we see here is God's intention to shine his favor upon his people. The second uh, thing that we see here is the fellowship into which he brings them. Now this is communicated already, isn't it? Not just uh, by the table, but by the preparation. Do you remember when uh, God came and visited in a theophany, in a human appearance, uh, Abraham? You remember elderly Abraham, you know, running and giving his wife instructions and running to, to the uh, herd and uh, choosing the best calf and running to prepare it. Uh, there is, there is here a table. The meal, the, the shared life together. God gives us to get our, uh, our life, humanly speaking, earthly speaking, from food so that when we break bread together, we have shared life together. So that when we come to the Lord's table and he breaks bread to us, 
He says, this is broken for you. The Lord Jesus presents to us our shared life with him. Well, that wasn't the first place that God had done that with man, was it? In fact, this isn't the first place that God has done that with man. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 14, and that priest who is the pattern for the priesthood of Jesus. And he says, blessed are thou, Abraham, of God most high. And Well, actually, I think he said first he blessed God most high, the God of Abraham, and, and then he blessed uh, blessed Abraham. And then what did Melchizedek bring out? Bread and wine. That the God by uh, who had blessed Abraham by his priest, or Abram at that time, uh, by his priest, was also giving Abram not just refreshments. I know it's been a tough war with the Kedorlaomer alliance, but fellowship with God. And so here we are. And where, upon what is this lamp shining? It's shining upon a pure gold table. And the reflection of the table and the lampstand uh, upon one another and what is on the table? It is this bread that has been prepared. Now notice that even the numbers here are communicating a bringing together in a shared life of God and his people. What is the number of the lampstands? It is seven. It is a number of completeness and especially completeness of divine work. So that God will complete this shining, this work of bringing his people to a place where he may smile upon them with the shining of his face. But you have the number of the seven coming from the, from the direction of the veil of the testimony with the number of the lamps. But how many loaves of bread are there? It's twelve, isn't it? And this is a, a number that is not just of mankind generally, but his redeemed people specifically. The 12 tribes. And Jesus constituting his church, intentionally selecting 12 apostles. And so in the bringing together even of the seven and the 12 for at this table of fellowship, God communicates this shared life into which he is bringing his people. Notice that the bread is called an offering by fire, uh, not now with respect to its being burned, but with respect to its being baked. You see, the priests come, and only the priests may eat it, and they have table fellowship with God. But this bread has been offered as an offering by fire, and so it must be eaten in a holy place, verse 9, because they're visiting heaven. God is having them over, as it were. How amazing this fellowship that God has brought them into, and how much more ours, which we will come to, by God's help, not too long from now. In this case, it is not a representative um, substance that ascends to God by burning, but actual representative people that ascend to God by entering the tabernacle, which represents heaven to them. 
The Lord is not only shining his glory upon us, but he is bringing us into a sharing of his life with us. Jesus came that his life might be in us. Jesus came that his joy might be in us. He brings us in himself, in his high priesthood, into a fellowship with God that is not merely the greatest fellowship that you can have on earth, but is quite literally a fellowship that is from heaven, a heavenly fellowship. So you have the favor in verses 1 through 4. You have the fellowship in verses 5 through 9. And you have this language that reminds us that what we have here are pictures that will end but so long as the picture is there, there is, this cons- there is this persistence, there is this continuality, because this administration of the covenant of grace that is being inaugurated here under Moses in Exodus and Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy is a participation in an everlasting covenant. Just as when God came to Abraham, and said he would be God to him, and uh, that he would be Abraham's God, and that Abraham and his people would would be Yahweh's people. He called that an everlasting covenant. Because each administration of the covenant of grace participates in an everlasting covenant. And so there is a faithfulness and a persistence and a continuality and uninterruptedness that in each administration is a right responding to and appreciation of the everlasting covenant of which our administration, the administration under which he brought us to himself, participates. So even this morning, for instance, didn't you hear the Lord, by his servant announcing his blessing upon you, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. But we're not always going to gather like this. Different congregations in different places. A merely human preacher who's been sent, whose feet are more beautiful than his lips, because the one who sent him to you is the beauty of the preaching and what he does through it and all that we've been hearing and Romans 10, praise God. We're not going to have the Lord's table forever. We eat the bread and drink the cup until he comes. We show forth the Lord's death in that way until he comes. One day you and I may gather to God in a pastoral prayer that is audibly led by Jesus. We don't want this to be forever. None of the administrations of the covenant of grace and time were meant to be forever. But in each of them, he uses this language, eternal covenant. That's the word. It's translated everlasting covenant. It's very close. It's a fine translation. We're not picking on it. But the word is the word that is of ages, of eternity. Indeed, it's the final word in verse 8. And again, the final word in verse 9, olam, eternal, forever. And so during their generations, before there was the change of priesthood that Hebrews 7 verse 12 talks about, and no longer under Moses, so the priesthood is no longer in Aaron. Now we're under Jesus, the son who is over the house, and 
There's a change in priesthood. The priesthood is Jesus, whose priesthood is forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we no longer do all of the things that Leviticus says to do because where there's a change of priesthood, there's a change of, of law. But still, do you notice in verse 2, continually. Verse 3, continually. Verse 4, continually. Verse 8, continually. Because there's something in the persistence and the faithfulness, in our case, the not forsaking of ourselves, uh, of the assembling of ourselves together, right? That even in this administration of the covenant of grace, which will be obsoleted one day, there is a faithfulness and a persistence, a continually that goes with it that reminds us that this administration too is part of the everlasting covenant. In fact, there is something of a finality because the priest that we have now, the prophet that we have now, the king that we have now, his office will never again be up for election or replacement or filling. He is forever. And although we are not yet gathered to him, soul and body, as we will be in the resurrection, we enjoy the everlasting covenant in the foreverness of his priesthood and his kingship. And so God, from creation, from creation, foreshadowed this fellowship into which he would ultimately bring his people. You know, even before he finishes the work that he does in six days and all very good, and then on the seventh day he makes the best thing of all, it's not even part of the creation, it's the Sabbath. He gives holy time uh, in gathering to him in that fellowship. Creator day uh, follows all of the creation days. But even before then, he defined for us what a day was, didn't he, in the way that he made things? Before there was, uh, before there was sun and moon and stars, there were evenings and mornings. Evening and morning, evening and... Why? Does God get to the end of the day and need to take a nap? Does God need at the beginning of the day to kind of recover himself so that he can get going on this next day? No, God created us to need that so that we might close every day in fellowship with him, enjoying his favor and our fellowship with him in that favor and begin every day. This rhythm that he gave that is the daily and weekly rhythm of this entire creation. And now he takes that which is a creational ordinance and is a incumbent upon all uh, humanity whom he has made in his image and he gives it special place in the life of the nation of Israel. You see, every evening they would know that the high priest is in there. They can't see into the holy place, but they know from their Bibles the high, the high priest is in there tending the lamp again. And I too must tend my heart again. Come to God in faith. Thank him for what good he has done for me today. Ask for his forgiveness for what ill I have done him today. Bless his name as I look forward to tomorrow and commit my plans and cares to him 
and trust him with my well-being because I'm about to be unconscious for eight hours. But he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And then we wake the next day and he has refreshed us. And even though he has refreshed us in body, how fickle and feeble and weak we are in our soul, in our mind. But he gave us not just evenings, but mornings that our cry would arise to him with the dawn, that as the light breaks upon the world, I would see and remember God has created me and redeemed me so that the light of the shining of the blessing of his favor would shine upon me forever. Indeed, there is coming a day when there is not even going to be a sun or moon or any such thing because God and the Lamb are the light of the place. And God, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to shine his blessing upon me, not just in the evening and in the morning, but continually. There's not going to be any more night. So every evening they know Aaron's in there or whoever the high priest is. Aaron was not forever, although he's specifically named here, isn't he? Throughout his generations, whoever the most recent iteration of Aaron, as it were, is. Every morning they know Aaron's in there. Every uh, evening they know Aaron's in there and they know to, to have their life punctuated by the fa- favor and fellowship of God. And then on the week, Sabbath comes. Where's Aaron? What's he doing? Why, he's replacing the showbread, isn't he? He's bringing 12 loaves, a, a fresh helping of the fellowship of God's people with their God to put on the table. And yes, the Aaron and everyone who is in him and in his house, uh, what are they having? What is their Lord's Day fellowship meal? Well, it's the old showbread that's coming off the table. What a blessed meal for them to have. And yet all of Israel may have their life with God punctuated Now, how about you? This is all ours now in Jesus. Jesus no longer takes evenings and mornings, does he? But we know what our high priest is doing and where he is. Where he, we know where he is and what he's doing at all times. He always lives to intercede for us by the power of his indestructible life. And he has given us to come to God through him morning and evening, every day in our homes. And then especially in the assembly, we're all part of the family now. We all come to the holy place now. And we eat and we drink. We have table fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. And God speaks to us and has a shared life with us. Jesus himself, by his spirit, singing his father's praise out of our mouths. We are brought into the son's praise of the father in the weekly worship assembly. Jesus declaring his father's name to his brethren through the preacher whom he has sent on earth. Jesus bringing us to table. A table that if we understood what we had, we would never wish that the Jews would let us back into the temple. Don't you realize you have a table from which they have no right to eat? And if they shame Jesus, 
go out there with Jesus and be shamed with him and eat at that table and enjoy his favor and have that shared life with him. You see, Aaron is emphasized in verse 3 and Aaron is emphasized in verse 9. But God was already, even at that time, he had already begun teaching his people to look forever, to look forward to the forever priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we should enjoy God's favor towards us in Jesus. Isn't this the apostolic description of what happened to you when he brought you to faith? He made the light of the knowledge of his glory to shine in your heart in the face of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle and the temple have not merely been obsoleted by Jesus Christ as the temple or even the church as the temple, but he has made the believer's heart a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. He even tells us that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And so enjoy God shining his blessing upon you in Jesus and enjoy the shared life that you have been brought into with God by the union that you have with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how we thank you for this portion of Leviticus, for Leviticus as a whole, for your word as a whole. We get so caught up in many of the particulars of what you have done for us, and they are good, and you are glorious in them. But we thank you for this reminder of the overall picture of what you are doing and will most certainly have finished doing in the last day. And we thank you for this reminder of how the daily and weekly of our li- rhythm of our lives, that which even continues now in this administration, is meant to communicate to us your favor upon us and your bringing us into your fellowship. And so we pray that your spirit would bless to us that which we have read and heard and considered from your word. Even help us by your spirit to make the application of dwelling upon these truths before you, that our hearts would be strengthened and gladdened in Christ by your spirit's blessing of your word, which we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.